0: Please be seated. Uh, do you have the mics on? OK. Uh, it's my pleasure to introduce tonight's lecture, uh, Dr. Aaron Garrett, professor of philosophy at Boston University. Professor Garrett studied anthropology as an undergraduate at the University of Chicago before earning his PhD in philosophy at the New School for Social Research. His work is focused on the history of of modern moral philosophy with attention to thinkers such as Bishop Barclay, Francis Hutcheson, and Adam Smith. His book on Spinoza's ethics explores the necessary connection between Spinoza's geometrical method and the content of his philosophy, his understanding of substance, and the essence of God. Professor Garrett also writes on the philosophy of film and music. His lecture tonight is entitled Human Animals, Please join me in welcoming Aaron Garrett. So, thank you. Um, I'm going to just talk, and you know, from, from notes, and go through this presentation. At some point, I might switch to the lecture. Don't be too disconcerted by—I mean, my written lecture. Don't be dis- too disconcerted by this. It's just this is already past my bedtime so I may be starting to wind down, and rather than nap, I should probably read at that point. But I'll start off and just try to talk from um, slides. So this delightful creature you see before you is a Pomeranian, and Hume had a Pomeranian. His Pomeranian was named Foxy, and he was apparently extremely devoted to this Pomeranian. There's a story about him getting extremely angry at losing at a game of whist, and he stood up from the table, walked away, came back, and said, come, Foxy, and then walked out the door with his dog. He never <laughs> forgot Foxy. Um, I mention this because Hume's writings, not just his personal life, but also his writings are full of animals, and those of you who have read the treatise have and the Inquiry Concerning Humor Understanding have already encountered a bunch of different Human animals, and I'm going to talk about animals from the treatise in the moment. But in um, Sorry. In the inquiry concerning human understanding, there's the famous example of the black and white proportionate horses. He discusses in the history, I think this is correct, I can be corrected about this, Harvey's um, access to Charles I's um, deer in order to perform experiments on their circulatory systems. In the early books of the history, he extensively discusses the enormous importance and utility of sheep for the founding of um, Great Britain. So in his historical works and his philosophical works, there are countless examples, these are just a few, of animals. In the treatise and the inquiry concerning human understanding, they play a very central role because for Hume, like many other philosophers of the 17th and 18th century, animals provided a kind of testing ground or laboratory for the account of human nature and the account of human mind. So as he said, and by the way, the numbers here will all refer to numbers on the handout. I'm not going to call them out, but if you, I decided I should give you a handout so you can question me on the quotations later on, so you can have quick access to them. So in our notions of human nature, we are very apt to make a comparison betwixt men and animals, which are the only creatures endowed with thought that fall under our senses. And as you perhaps know, um, this was in a way of commonplace in the period, Locke, in the essay concerning human understanding, spends a great deal of time talking about exactly what the borderline is between the human and the animal in order to fix on what are the distinctive kinds of um, mental powers that human beings have, abstraction, language, etc. Leibniz does something very similar. Descartes obviously draws a very, very strong line between animal mechanisms and human minds in order to get at what it is to be a thinking substance. So this is a very common feature of early modern theory of mind and early modern study of human nature. Hume, even more so than Locke, unlike Descartes, and pretty much more so than just about any other philosopher in the period, is a thoroughgoing naturalist about human nature via comparison to animals. And what I mean by that, and we'll see it in a second, is Hume thinks that almost everything that holds of human beings also holds of animals. It just holds of human beings to a different degree. And the kinds of explanatory laws that you can use to um, get at why animals act in the way they do and how animals think hold of human beings as well. In fact, In a number of places, Hume says human beings are animals. So this quote, he says, humans are barbarous, necessitous animals. In the reason of animals section, which some of you have probably just read in the reading group, Hume compares reason to an instinct. He argues animals have instincts. And reason is just the distinctively human, well, not distinctively, an important human instinct. So what holds, again, of humans holds of animals, and vice versa. So there's this kind of thoroughgoing attempt to analyze human beings and animals as falling under the same natural mental processes and same natural laws. That's what makes it striking that Hume argues that there is a feature of human beings that doesn't apply to animals. And Hume suggests in um, treatise and in other places that rights and property don't apply to animals, animals aren't capable of property, and rights, moral and natural rights, don't apply to animals, or I shouldn't say natural, rights don't apply to animals, and he says quite strikingly, we do not lie under any restraint of justice with regard to them, nor could they possess any right of property. So justice doesn't apply to animals. So the puzzle is, Why doesn't Hume go thoroughly naturalist and argue that morality is just like every other um, human capacity that is shared with animals. It's just held by human beings to a different degree. Why does Hume argue that morality, central features of morality, justice and rights, are distinct from the kinds of capacities that animals have? So does this make sense so far as why this is a kind of puzzle? you wouldn't expect that Hume would do that, but he does do that. So why did Hume make rights and property, excuse the hideous misspelling, an exception to his otherwise consistent explanatory naturalism in his comparisons of humans and animal reason and passions? So what I'm gonna do <coughs> in this presentation, is first I'm gonna talk about how Hume discusses animals in comparison with human beings in the treatise and in the inquiry concerning the human understanding. Then I'm going to talk about a philosopher who Hume knew and who influenced Hume named Francis Hutcheson, who had extremely interesting arguments for animal rights. So for the thesis that's opposed to what Hume held, that rights do apply to animals and justice does apply to animals. Then I'm going to discuss Hume's correspondence with Hutcheson, where a problem comes up that I think explains why Hume chooses to deny rights to animals in his moral writings. And finally, I'm going to conclude a little bit about what I think the consequences of this are. So first, Foxy will lead us to a little bit about the comparison between humans and animals in the treatise in the Eucharist. So those of you who've read the treatise know that treatise 1.3 is Hume's extended discussion of causation, uh, an extended argument from 1.3 to 114 about the nature, sorry, one 131 yeah, 1-3-1 to 1314, about the nature of causation, that concludes with the famous discussion of necessary connections. And that's followed by Hume's logic, which I'll explain in a second, and then the little discussion of the reason of animals. That's the structure of the work. Hume's logic, as you know, do you read uh, 15 and 16, 1, 3? Do you read this sort of discussion of causal logic? Yeah, you do. So Hume's logic, I think, is Hume's attempt to take his account of causation and provide a set of rules, like Newton's rules of philosophizing, that can be used to guide philosophers when they discuss anything having to do with causation. And Hume thinks that these rules will stop philosophers from making various kinds of mistakes. I think the primary mistake that Hume's worried about, and this is connected with animals, are um, uses of illicit analogies in causal reasoning that result in bad and questionable conclusions. So one of the targets of these kinds of discussions in Hume's treatise is a work by Joseph Butler called The Analogy of Religion, where what Butler does is he argues by analogy from facts about this life, we can know whether it's likely or not we will exist in the next life, whether it's likely or not we have a just God. We can draw all sorts of inferences about God in the afterlife on the basis of analogical reasoning in this life. And I think one of the things Hume is trying to do is argue that if you have a restricted conception of causation, like Hume argues for in 1314. You can rebuild a set of rules, much like Newton's rules for philosophizing in physics, that stop some of this illicit analogical reasoning, or that restrain some of this illicit analogical reasoning. And what Hume does in the reason of animals section and the discussion of pride and humility of animals and love and hatred of animals is he applies these rules to comparisons between humans and animals to show what follows when you reason far more carefully than someone like Butler or all sorts of other people reason about these issues. When you pay attention to what you can really, what kinds of conclusions you can really draw for a proper conception of causation. So the three rules that I want to talk about briefly are rules four through six. Rule four states the same cause always produces the same effect and the same effect never arises but from the same cause. So it's quite a common-sense rule. I'm not sure it's a true rule, but it's quite a common-sense rule that um, effects give rise to the same cause, and, sorry, two effects, yeah. Same cause always, excuse me. (laughs) Um, If you have a cause, it always produces the same effect, sorry, and if you have an effect that's the same, it never arises but from the same cause. So it's a consistency rule about effects and causes. And what humans going to do is use it to compare causal relations between humans and animals, such as to show that they share various kinds of properties due to similar causal due to the same causal processes. The second rule states: when several objects produce the same effect, it must by means of some quality which we discover to be common amongst them. So, when you have multiple objects and you have the same effect, there has to be a similar quality that's shared in the various kinds. Of objects that produce the same effect. And he's going to use that again to show that there are certain qualities, like custom, that are shared by both human beings and animals because we can see the same effects as resulting. Finally, there's a rule, rule six, that shows how we can pick out carefully where difference is. The difference in the effects of two resembling objects must proceed from that particular in which they differ. So when you have uh, two effects, that are different, but the objects are the same, the difference in the effects has to proceed from something particular about the objects that differs. Now, these are extremely abstract. Let's see how Hume uses them a little bit in action. So Hume uses them in his discussion of animals in order to do three different things. The first is he uses these kinds of these rules in order to explain, via animals, human capacities. So using animals as a kind of laboratory to make sense of what human beings do. So here's a quote um, from the treatise. It is custom alone which engages animals from every object that strikes their senses to infer its usual attendant and carries their imagination from the appearance of the one to conceive the other in that particular manner which we denominate belief. No other explanation can be given of this operation in all the higher as well as lower classes of sensitive beings, which fall under our notice and observation. So, see what it says: is custom engages animals from every object that strikes their senses, um, and from this it, it carries their imagination. Sorry, it carries their imagination from the appearance of one to the other. We call this belief. Whenever we see this kind of structure, we know we have the same kind of customary belief. This holds both of animals and of human beings. So it's an application of four and five to similarities to animals, and then arguing on the basis of four and five that humans do the same thing. They also um, go from objects that strike their senses to holding custom beliefs on the basis of custom. So Hume views these rules and the comparison between animals and humans as a very powerful tool to show that what humans do can be explained by animals. And similarly, he does this with pride and all sorts of other passions, and we'll talk about that in a second. Um, He also uses it to deflate human belief in human superiority by showing that what human, being, that human processes are just the same as animals. So you might think you're special, but in fact, there's nothing really distinctive about you. you're very much like animals. Animals therefore are not guided in these inferences by reasoning, neither are children, neither are the generality of mankind in their ordinary actions and conclusions, neither are philosophers themselves, who in all the active parts of life, are in the main the same with the boulder and are concerned by the same maxims. So if a process holds of children, and the effects and the causes are the same, it can hold of the generality of mankind. It can hold of philosophers as well. So don't think that at least in this capacity, the way in which we form beliefs, philosophers are really any different from animals and human beings. So it's deflating the special standing of human beings at the same time as it's explaining something about human beings through comparison with animals. And thirdly, Hume views these comparisons, and he actually mentions Newton in this context, as a way of affirming the power of his explanatory system. If something can be sh- if a general rule or a general law can be shown to hold both of human beings and of animals, and the explanation for human beings works for animals as well, that reinforces the explanation for human beings. It's kind of a test case, on the basis of which you can show that the original explanation for human beings was compelling. So these three kinds of functions, I think, underlie a lot of the ways in which Hume compares humans and animals using this logic that I've just described. Hume is also interested, sorry, in differentiating humans and animals. Um, and that's where the sixth rule comes in. The difference in the effects of two resembling objects must proceed from that particular in which they differ. So if you have two effects that are different, but the objects are the same, then, the, uh, then whatever difference it must—sorry, difference in the effects must follow from some particular in which the objects differ. So an example of this it can be found in this discussion of pride and humility. When discussing the passions of pride and humility, Hume argues that the basic structure of pride, that pride has its object as the self, is the same for human beings and animals. So for human beings, things connected to the self, like my beautiful house or my fancy watch, give me pride because these objects are beautiful and they're connected to me. So I go, beautiful me, ah, beautiful me, pride. And Hume calls that the double um, system. It's both the power of the beauty of the object and the way that it connects to me that gives the force of this feeling of pride. So there's a simple mechanism that does it. And Hume says, the causes of these passions are likewise much the same in beasts as in us, making a just allowance for our superior knowledge and understanding. Thus animals have little or no sense of virtue or vice, they quickly lose sight of the relations of blood and are incapable of that of right and property, for which reason the causes of their pride and humility must lie solely in the body and can never be placed either in the mind or external objects. So here Hume is arguing, according to Rule (coughs) 6, excuse me, that the structure of pride is the same in human beings and animals, but the objects are different, and The consequences are in some cases different. The reason why they're different is that for animals, pride and humility must lie solely in the body, even though the structure of pride and humility are the same. It's related to self. Whereas for human beings, it's not. And that's because human beings are capable of a much greater imagination, and human beings are capable of a much wider range of objects than animals are. So here Hume is trying to differentiate between animals and human beings in order to make a point about how they share a passion, but the results of the passion are somewhat different. Certainly with love and hate, Hume says, as animals are but little susceptible either of these to the pleasures or pains of the imagination, they can judge of objects only by the sensible good or evil which they produce, and from that must regulate their affections towards them. So animals share the passions of love and hate with human beings. Um, He argues this at length. But because of the restrictions on their imagination, as with pride and humility, they only love on the basis of their senses, of sensible good and evil. That's what really regulates them. It's not really regulated by the pleasures or pains of the imagination. So what he has in mind is that when I love my watch, because it has all sorts of fancy gears in it. I'm loving it on the basis of the way in which I imagine all of these gears working, even when I'm not, I'm definitely not experiencing my watch. Ah, even when I'm not tactilely experiencing my watch. Whereas with animals, it's far more restricted to a tactile or sensible experience of the object. The passion is the same, but due to animal restriction on the imagination, the object comes out a little bit different. So here we have again an example of Hume differentiating on the basis of the application of that rule in comparison. So I'm about to, in a moment. I'm going to list all of the things that Hume thinks are different between humans and animals. But there's one more interesting claim that Hume makes about humans and animals that comes up in a different context. So everything I've discussed so far comes up in the context of Hume's discussions of the reason of animals, the pride and humility of animals, and the love and hatred of animals in Parts 1 and 2 of um, the treatise. But in Part 3 of the treatise, when Hume is discussing uh, moral rationalism, when Hume is discussing the claim that morality is founded in reason, that morality is not founded in sentiment, one of his arguments against moral rationalism is if morality was founded in reason, then the same relations of reason that hold of human beings would hold of animals. So incest would be a taboo among animals in the same way it is a taboo among human beings. But animals are not morally judged for committing incest. Human beings are. Therefore, there's a fundamental difference. Based on that fundamental difference, we can see that moral rationalism is false that morality is not founded in ultimate kinds of rational relations, fitnesses and unfitnesses, that are facts about the world. So whatever you think of the argument, the argument follows from Hume's claim that I would fain ask anyone why incest in the human species is criminal, and why the very same action and the same relations in animals have not the smallest moral turpitude and deformity. So so far, we've been discussing the similarities between humans and animals, how they share reason, how they share passions. And we've been discussing the differences in terms of restrictions on the passions and restrictions on reason. But these differences have been differences of degree, not differences of kind. So they've been differences like the extent of pride and humility is only to the body in animals. And in human beings, it extends much further. But it's the same kind of structure. The extent of love and hatred is through the imagination in human beings, but only minimally through the imagination in animals. It's the same structure, but the extension is different. But now we're talking about something that's much more fundamentally different. That these kinds of moral judgments, moral turpitude and deformity, that hold of human beings don't hold of animals. So this is the line, this is the puzzle that I began with at the very beginning of the talk. So let me now list off the particulars that Hume thinks distinguish humans and animals. Um, Animals, he says, have little or no sense of virtue or vice, but they do have some sense of virtue or vice, perhaps, just little or no. Animals quickly lose sight of the relations of blood. Um, Animals are incapable of right and property. Animals are little susceptible, either of the pleasures or the pains of the imagination and more relations such as incest do not apply. Now, as you're probably thinking, this just seems a heap of random comments about animals. What unites these? What holds them together? Um, Sorry, one more I want to say. Um, What I'm going to try to argue in a moment is there's a unity to this list. And Hume is creating this list in order to argue for why number five why it's the case that moral relations don't apply and it's going to be connected with why one through four do apply in different ways but first i want to point out one last feature that makes the puzzle a little weird as i said hume holds that moral relations don't apply like rights and property and justice don't apply to animals but he does say that animals are capable of benevolence. So animals are capable of sentiments that Hume does think are natural virtues, benevolence. He discusses this in part three of book three of the treatise. Animals are found susceptible of kindness, both to their own species and to ours, nor is there, in this case, the least suspicion of disguise or artifice shall we account for all their sentiments to from refined deductions of self-interest?" So he's talking about why he thinks egoism is a flawed theory. But as part of this, he admits that animals are capable of something like the natural sentiment of benevolence that in human beings we hold to be a virtue. So if anything, this complicates the problem even further. Why is it the case that animals aren't capable of moral turpitude when it comes to insects? but they are capable of natural benevolence. It makes the list seem even more confused. Okay. so why these arbitrary restrictions? In order to understand this, we now have to turn to Hume's discussion of the artificiality of justice and his commitment to it. And in order to understand that, we have to turn to, after Foxy, a rather different philosopher named Francis Hutcheson. So when Hume wrote the treatise, he was not well-known. He only became a well-known philosopher in the 1740s, and he wrote the treatise in the 1730s. The best-known philosopher in um, Scotland was someone named Francis Hutcheson. He, he was not just the best-known philosopher in Scotland. He was a philosopher who was known the world over. And he was the professor of moral philosophy at the University of Glasgow. and. In addition to being a well-known philosophy professor, he was a central influence in Scottish life and in Enlightenment life more broadly. So he was a very, very important person. And Hume sent him a copy of the treatise when he was just finishing it up, um, part three of the treatise, soliciting comments from Hutcheson. And Hutchison very graciously wrote back to Hume a set of comments. And they entered into a correspondence. And it's a fascinating, and I'm going to talk about a slightly later correspondence in a moment, but it's a fascinating correspondence because as you've no doubt encountered in the treatise, Hume is a slightly obnoxious philosopher um, in the sense that he doesn't really mince words when he doesn't care for a position. And that's what the correspondence reads like too, except for Hutcheson is the most powerful philosopher in Scotland. And one of the more important philosophers in the British world. And Hume is nobody. But Hutchison sends Hume's ar- Hume his arguments, and Hume responds, that's wrong, that's false. And Hutchison puts up with it. Hutchison is extremely gracious in his responses to it, as we'll see in a moment. Um, although Hutchison did deny Hume a position at the University of Edinburgh, but that's a different story. Um, I'm a huge fan of Hume. Hume deserved it, but that's a different story. Um, So in this context, what's striking is that Hutchison is the first philosopher that I know of to give a coherent argument that rights and justice do apply to animals. He's the first philosopher, I think, of animal rights. And as we're going to see in a second, he argued that we have moral obligations to domesticated animals, and these are and animals, sorry, have rights conversely against us when we fail in these moral obligations. These obligations are defeasible. If, as we'll see in a second, when the community breaks down, these rights fall away. But they're real rights. And um, animals, therefore, are capable of both justice and rights in the way that Hume is denying. So you can sort of see now what the argument is going to be, that Hume is constructing this list for reasons having to do with the position that Hutchison held. So in 1743, after Hume had started to become well-known, Hutchison sent Hume a copy of a work he had just published in Latin called the Philosophiae Moralis Institutio Compendiare. And in this work, he discusses what he calls adventitious rights. And adventitious rights are rights that you can acquire by being a member of a community or in relation to others. They don't need a contract. Membership is sufficient in order to have one of these adventitious rights. Um, And. In the discussion of adventitious rights, Hume, sorry, Hutchison, we're now on Hutchison. Hutchison discusses animals and the way in which animals are susceptible of rights as well. For those of you who read Hobbes and those of you who've spent hours reading Puffendorf, which I'm sure is all of you, and are deeply immersed in the natural law tradition, you know that it's very hard to imagine in this tradition, I mean, Hobbes is a really good example of this, how animals could have rights at all. For Hobbes, animals can't have rights other than natural right, but they can't have any kinds of instituted rights because they can't enter into contracts. So there's no way of bringing them into the fold of rights. Whereas Hutchison was trying to find a way, against the background of this tradition, to give animal, to give animals rights. And what he argues is that animals, which are standardly viewed as property in this tradition, can be given a place in between property and servants, which is another category in this tradition, in order to explain how we have moral obligations to them. So let me explain very briefly Hutchison's background picture and then explain how this works. So for Hutchison, there's A continuity between the kind of benevolence or goodwill or love I have towards my family members, the kind of benevolence I have towards the public, and between my goods, my personal goods, and public goods. There are various kinds of theorists who hold that there are strict lines between them. But for Hutchison, Public benevolence is an extension of private benevolence. So, when I love family members and when I love a fellow member of my um, community, that's the same kind of feeling I have, and I'm extending the feeling I have towards my family, towards the member of my community. When I benefit from a good um, for myself, that's also, for Hutchison, connected to the ways in which the public ought to benefit for the good. And I'll explain this more in a little se- in a second. Hutchison also held that um, this kind of benevolence I've described and utility, or maybe welfare would be a better term for this, the happiness of a community come together through us forming what he calls natural communities. So what he has in mind is that when you and I enter together into a community and we feel goodwill towards each other, we flourish as a community due to the goodwill that we share as members of this community. So, so Someone like Hume thinks there is conflict between utility and benevolence. For Hutchison, the two seamlessly mesh together. As I mentioned, Hutchison holds that we can acquire rights through extension of communities to new members. And finally, Hutchison holds that justice is something natural, that justice is a kind of natural harmony that um, holds of members of community, like Aristotle, like the Stoics, that holds of members of a community, and is connected with the unity of the virtues. So all of these different theses are held by Hutchison in his political philosophy. Now, how is this connected with animals? What Hutchinson argues is that animals can be included in communities. They can acquire rights, what I refer to as adventitious rights, insofar as they are benevolent and have utility. They provide something useful to the community. Um, so the idea behind that, this is that if I see a sheep wandering around in the moors, I don't owe any rights or moral deference to that sheep. But if I pet the sheep, and if I shear the sheep, and the sheep enters into a relationship of benevolence and utility with me, the sheep becomes a member of my natural family or my community. And due to the fact that the sheep has been useful to me and has exhibited benevolence to me and vice versa, we begin to share moral obligations. So the moral obligations bootstrap on these kinds of relations that hold between um, animals and human beings, and, and, and Hutchison thinks that's sufficient for what I've called an adventitious right. And Hutchison thinks more generally that this is part of the natural providential order, that humans and animals have been brought together by God, They're created in such a way, sheep are created in such a way that Scotsmen will be drawn to sheep, and sheep will be drawn to Scotsmen. And together, they're formed, united sort of communities that benefit all of them. Um, So there's one sort of more wrinkle to this, is you might say, well, that doesn't really seem like no. Humans are getting the wool from the sheep. But what are the sheep getting other than just a a pet on occasion from the human beings? And Hutchison's answer is domestication results in a kind of perfecting of the animal. So when the animal moves from being a wild sheep to a member of my community and it gambles happily in the, um, I guess it's not, to, on the lawn, it gambles happily on the lawn, and um, it its wool becomes the basis for me baking my kilts. I domesticate the sheep in such a way as to make the sheep a better member of this community than it would be wandering around um, the moors. And consequently, through my shepherding, that's the term he uses, I bring the sheep into um, I bring the sheep into this benevolent association and through this the sheep requires rights. So animals then can have domestic domesticated animals and only domesticated animals can have rights according to Hutchison because they're, because they have private benevolence, they can be incorporated and perfected through a natural community. They can become happy domesticated sheep and become part of a community with others. They meet a certain kind of threshold because of sentiments that they have, and because they have utility. So because they have something useful to the community, and um, they become essential parts of the community. So in a way, it's sort of, if you've seen the film Babe, it's kind of like the Babe theory. That Babe is an expendable member of the community until he starts behaving like a sheep, and then at that moment he becomes, he gains rights. The farmer no longer wants to kill him. The farmer realizes he's useful, and then he becomes um, a cherished member of the of the family of this um, of the sheep family. So that's in a nutshell how Hutcheson views the views. Animals as being capable of rights through incorporation via their benevolence and their usefulness and through the act of domestication into a benevolent association. Now, I mentioned that Hutchison sent a copy of his book to Hume. And Hume did not, Hume said that he really enjoyed the book, but being Hume, he, of course, had to make a very strong critical comment about it as well. So in a letter of 1743, Hume wrote to Hutcheson, you sometimes, in my opinion, ascribe the original property and justice to public benevolence and sometimes to private benevolence towards the possessor of the goods, neither of which seems to me satisfactory. It mortifies me much to see a person who possesses more candor and penetration than any almost I know condemn reasonings of which I imagine I see so strongly the evidence." So what this means is Hume thinks that in positing this providentialist conception of natural justice that I very quickly outlined, that justice is natural, justice is the harmony that God in the world, justice is the possession of various kinds of natural virtues, that that Hutchison is failing to see that that's a a wrong way to think about the origins of property and justice. And origins of property and justice don't come from public benevolence. They don't come from this kind of benevolence we feel towards sheep, such that we draw them into our association. um, But they come instead from another source. Now, in this letter, Hume doesn't talk about animal rights. But he singles out a closely related issue. And I think this issue is important for understanding why why Hume gives us the list of animal properties he does. So in the letter, when Hume wants to give an example of something that Hutchison thinks is the consequence of benevolence and natural justice, natural law, but in fact is due to an artificial convention or institution, he brings up the example of incest. And Hutchison argued that the reason why, this is a quote from Hutchinson, I think, the reason why there's a general taboo on what he calls transverse incest. Transverse incest is incest between siblings as opposed to incest between um, parent and child. And so they both agree that, well, Hutchison thinks that it's obvious that there are natural prohibitions against parent-child incest. But he feels the need to explain what the problem is with transverse incest. And his explanation is the intention of this law, by which he means a natural law of justice, has probably been to diffuse further among many families that goodwill and endearment of which frequently arises from consanguinity and affinity. This is a wonderfully crazy explanation. What the explanation is, is the reason why you need a a taboo against sibling incest is only with that taboo in place will members of families move outward with their benevolence. And that's part of this providential process of benevolence moving through the world. So that's why the taboo is in place. It's due to natural law and natural justice. And unsurprisingly, Hume thinks this is a very unconvincing explanation. And he says, you were so much afraid to derive anything of virtue from artifice or human conventions that you have neglected what seems to me the most satisfactory reason vis-a-vis less near relations having so many opportunities in their youth might debauch each other if the least encouragement or hope was given to these desires, or if they were not early repressed by an artificial horror inspired against them. So Hume thinks it's obvious that the taboo against transverse incest is an instituted artificial taboo. It's a customer rule that's passed around, passed down, for reasons of utility. Um, does anyone, by the way, have a theory of what the utility of a custom like this might be on Humean grounds? Well, one reason why you might, reason, <laughs> the reason Hume gives is he says, in a wonderfully adroit phrase, the manners of the family would break down if there wasn't this prohibition. And what he means by this is you would have love between siblings, uh, fraternal and sororal love between siblings, and you would have sexual love between siblings. And that would result in the breakdown of all sorts. That would result in enormous tension and animosity in the family and result in its breakdown. And one can imagine it would. Um, by the way, it's interesting that they picked this example because in the case of, of parent-child incest, you might argue that that's a universal taboo. But in the case of transverse incest, because of the fact that there are all these examples of kings and queens who are siblings who are married, and Caligula and a sister, and so forth and so on, it's not obvious that it's, a, it's actually not a, it's obviously not a universal taboo because there are cases where it doesn't hold. So I think humans actually are on quite strong ground when he argues that this particular taboo is probably the, constant, the consequence of a customer convention, and that Hutchison, in his attempt to try to show how everything arises from, ultimately arises from um, providential design and the way in which natural justice plays itself out in the world, he's gone off the rails with this example. By the way, not a very nice letter to send someone who just gave you a gift, but that's. That's the nature of the relationship. So going back to our previous discussion, we can see now why incest doesn't apply to animals, but it does apply to human beings. The reason why incest doesn't apply to animals isn't because it's moral, per se. The reason it doesn't apply to animals is because it involves a complex convention. And animals are incapable of these kinds of conventions. So the line that Hume is trying to mark isn't isn't just between moral and other kinds of animal, moral um, functions that animals lack and other kinds of functions that humans and animals share. It's between complex conventions and which animals are incapable of and um, other kinds of um, mental uh, mental powers and passions that animals are capable of. So, when we return now to the list, we can begin to see why it takes the structure it does. Um, What Hume is doing is he's offering two reasons against animal rights, which parallel Hutcheson's reasons for animal rights. So, where Hutcheson argues that animals are capable of rights, because due to their natural benevolence and their utility, they go over a certain threshold that allows them to be incorporated into communities and through this to have a right not to suffer and not to feel um, unfair pain and pleasure. Hume is arguing that benevolence doesn't get you over that threshold because rights and justice aren't rooted in benevolence. They're rather rooted in the capacity to follow rules, conventions, customs, and artifices. So benevolence is insufficient, and utility are insufficient in order to um, fall under justice and rights. And second, Hume wants to argue, and I think this is a really interesting point at Hume. Let me see how much more time I have. A few more minutes. There's a really interesting point of Hume that I'm going to say a few things more about that Hume wants to argue that even if animals are useful to human beings, utility is not sufficient in order to get acquire rights. That someone is useful, and useful in a very important way, doesn't mean that that person or that animal necessarily has rights. And I'll explain why Hume thinks that in a second. So going back to the list. Hume says, animals have little or no sense of virtue or vice. Animals quickly lose sight of the relations of blood. Um, They're incapable of remembering kinship, such as to not commit incest. Animals are little susceptible either of the pleasures or pains of the imagination. So those are the differences of degree that Hume argues for. And then Hume argues for two differences of kind. Um, And each of those is human beings share those, but to a different degree. All, most of us can remember our relations of blood maybe to second cousins, but not beyond that. Animals lose sight of siblings, but we share this to a, to, to a certain degree. There are two differences of kind. Animals are incapable of that, of right, and property, and moral relations such as incest do not apply to them, but they apply to human beings. And you've already seen from how we've discussed incest how this argument is now going to go. Hume holds that animals are incapable of conventions and customs, complex customs, for the same reason they lose sight of the relations of blood and they're little susceptible of the pleasures and pains of the imagination. They don't have sufficient memory, and they don't have um, the capacity to learn complex rules in order to inculcate the kinds of conventions that are necessary for rights and justice. And, and I think this is a really interesting point, they're not capable of the kinds of sanctions that we attach to complex conventions that hold them in place, because they're not really capable of pleasures or pains of the imagination. And let me give you two examples of this. If you fear having to wear the scarlet letter A, if you commit adultery, you're less likely to commit adultery, but you have to have a relatively powerful imagination to fear having to wear the scarlet letter A. That convention is held in place by the imagination. If you don't have an extensive imagination, you won't be inculcated in that convention. If you are happy sheep running uh, an enormous tab with a credit card and You don't fear your credit being cut off and being pushed out of all kinds of commercial society and never being able to buy your hay and lanolin again on credit. You're not going to be able to keep to that convention either. What keeps you in that convention are the pleasures and the pains of the imagination. And by the way, those of you who have read Hobbes' Leviathan know that this is a central point for Hobbes too. Hope and fear are very much connected to the pleasures of the imagination and the fears of the imagination. So these are necessary conditions of what Hume calls natural obligation, following a convention for utility. Animals fail due to differences of degree, not of kind, to satisfy that. So you can see now how it's working. These differences of degree result in a difference of kind. Similarly, animals don't really have strong moral obligations or sufficiently strong in order to have the whole thing work on the basis of moral obligation alone. That's what Hutchinson thinks, sorry, Hutchinson thinks that animal benevolence is sufficient. But for Hume, benevolence is not sufficient in order to get something like justice or rights. Rather, you have to have both natural and moral obligation, both the feeling that something's wrong and the convention connected together in order to have something like rights or or the artifices of justice. So animals consequently are incapable of right and property, and incest doesn't apply to them. And notably, unlike consciousness, animal benevolence or approval of animal, animal benevolence has nothing to do with rights. So now you can see what this sort of disheveled list is actually trying to do. It's trying to argue that, Differences of degree between humans and animals are the basis for fundamental differences of kind. But these differences of kind aren't natural. They're artificial. So that's why Hume can allow differences of kind. They're not different fundamental natural differences between humans and be, human beings. Are you trying to give me a message? Solomon almost right. They're not fundamental differences between human beings based on nature. They're differences based on instituted artifice. I want to say one last thing about this, and then I'll let the lights go up. The final passage on the handout, it's a fascinating passage. It's worth a whole discussion on its own. There's another reason why Hume thinks that rights don't hold of animals. And it's because Hume thinks, and this is very much like, I was thinking about this the other day, it's very much like Thucydides thinks in the Malian debate, that In order to have a right, you have to have a shared assumption of equality that the people who are opposed, the person who's demanding, or the thing that's demanding the right, and the the person who has to give the right, so you demand your rights from me, and I have to accept your demand. We have to assume each other are equal to some extent in order for this relation to work. And you have to be able to enforce your rights if I refuse them. Those are important conditions of rights, Hume thinks. And Hume thinks animals are incapable of both of those, sadly. Hume thinks that, because Hume thinks we should be kind to animals. He loves foxy. So he's not arguing we shouldn't be kind of animals. He's arguing they don't have rights because of the nature of what rights are. We don't assume animals are equals. We assume they are inferiors. And as a consequence, any kindness we extend to them, we view as a kind of largesse. But that's not a right. A right is something you can demand from someone else. And animals are incapable of enforcing their rights against us. Planet of the Apes is a kind of fantasy where animals enforce their rights against us. They let their grievances be known in such a way that we have to take seriously the way in which we mistreat them. Whereas Hume thinks that even if you bring a case to the Supreme Court on the behalf of a primate that's been experimented on, it's not the primate who's been enforcing it. It's you on behalf of the primate who's enforcing it. And for that reason, the enforcement isn't from the animal. The enforcement is from something that actually has the capacity to enforce a right on behalf of the animal. And for that reason, animals, as much as we should treat them kindly, whatever reason we should treat them kindly, it doesn't ultimately line up as a right for you. Okay. So that's enough. Thank you very much. Um, That's Humanity.